well, why is it that I have to be restricted to the way that my body is? The true me is actually this kind of mental thing. And perhaps there's no reason intrinsically that that can't be made into a digital form and that that digital form would have all kinds of advantages. If I'm really software running on a hardware body, why can't I move that software onto something better? If you could live forever, would you? Have you ever considered your phone, your laptop, or even your social media profiles as extensions of yourself? Welcome back to Imagine Human, a podcast focused on the intersection of science, technology, and the future of humanity. I'm your host, Morgan Moncada. In this episode of Imagine Human, we discuss these modern questions through the lens of transhumanism, a movement integrating humanity with technology. We talk with Seth Viegas, a PhD student at Boston University, about our digital selves on social media and the future of transhumanism as it relates to longevity, and more fundamentally, what it means to be human. Hey, Seth, so great to have you here. Very interested to talk with you about so many different topics covering religion, technology, and transhumanism. I thought we'd get started by talking a little bit about your journey to getting to your studies right now at Boston University. Right now, I'm at Boston University in the PhD program in theology. And I think for most people who are listening, they'd probably ask, well, how is it that someone who's studying theology is really interested in questions of technology? But I, I will say what's really notable about my program is it's a science and religion program specifically. So how do you take the kinds of questions and problems that arise in religion and say, how do those things interact with questions in science? And so there's a really broad focus that really you don't see almost anywhere else. There are two paths that I'm really interested in exploring, and they're a little exclusive. One of those paths is to continue what I'm doing now, to continue doing research on things like transhumanism from the perspective of the academy thinking about those things deeply, you know, having conversations like this one and really trying to pull apart those ideas. My dissertation focus right now is really trying to, to look at well, why is there such a big interest in digital immortality? What's the kind of anthropological claims that go into it, which is just to say, you know, what, the, what is it that they think about what humans fundamentally are that makes them think that this is possible and also that's desirable? I think the second path for me is to is to work on kind of more mundane issues of technical ethics or technological ethics. I don't say mundane in the sense that they're boring, but mundane in the sense that we interact with them every day. It's kind of in the water of what we're doing on social media. It's in our different kinds of interactions. And it, it would be really trying to pull apart those interactions to see how they form us, how do they affect us, how they make us think differently, and kind of who are the players in play that are interested in controlling those interactions. So Tristan Harris, you know, he, he's someone who's talked a lot about this, but he, he mentions a lot of, of Shoshana Zuboff's book of, about surveillance capitalism, which is basically that the way we interact with lots of technology today is they, they have so much data that they can affect the, the ways in which we use that technology below our conscious levels of awareness. And so there's this presiding ethical danger that's kind of there at the same time. And for someone like me who's interacting with transhumanism, a lot of the ways in which they expect for us to be able to preserve ourselves is, is through data collection technologies. So it's interesting to think that 
the data collection technologies that we have in the present actively distort us, right? But in the future, there's supposed to be better ones that might be able to save us. And I'm really, really suspicious of that. There's something about that that's wrong. It doesn't quite add up. And I wouldn't want to trust, say, my soul, if I was going to give a religious metaphor, right, to these technologies to be uplifted into, you know, the virtual heaven, so to speak. Can you talk a little bit about what got you started? In I, I grew up Christian. You know, my family is Christian, and that's probably a large part of where my ethical base started from. And, you know, kind of growing up, it's always been a big question for us of, you know, how to live a good life, how to do right by other people, and how to have values, as, as my mom would say. And kind of going forward from that, uh, I was a student at Stanford. And at Stanford, it's just kind of in the water. Technology is everywhere. Everyone learns how to code at some point. Well, maybe not everyone, but, you know, th that's kind of the reputation that the school has. And, you know, I, I learned Java. I learned C there. It was just a really great experience. And when you're around so many different kinds of people who are interested in technology, who go on to work at big tech companies, Facebook, Google, it, it's hard not to, to, to think about those things. And you, you run into all these really sort of interesting problems. One of the things that really stuck out to me was if I have, you know, I'll have friends who work at Facebook, but they're not really comfortable with what the company does. But they also only do one small part of what that company is. They're working on a smaller part of a bigger project that they don't necessarily control. And then there's also this question of, well, does the technology itself do things that maybe aren't intended by anyone? As I've investigated these technologies more in my program, I think it's become more and more evident that there are ways in which technology operates in ways that we don't quite understand. I think that's one of the biggest issues in machine learning today. And so going back to what I initially started with of, well, what are these technologies supposed to do? Are they just supposed to make us money? Are they supposed to help us live better lives? Are they supposed to influence our political views, our religious views? All these kinds of things are really pertinent now. And if you have a specific kind of outlook of any kind, it's not clear how it is that you should actually be relating to that technology. Do you live in an echo chamber? There's all these kinds of really practical questions that are a product just of how technologies themselves are, right, of how they function. Like some things are really top down, some things are bottom up. But the problem is that you could make these in almost any different kind of way. And as someone who kind of studies ethics for a living, that's one of the pressing questions today of how is it that you can actually build something that lots of different people can use from lots of different backgrounds, from you know different religious backgrounds even, or different socioeconomic statuses. Uh, how can you make something that satisfies all those people's needs while also not kind of flattening out who they are as individuals? And so there's all these kind of interesting tensions that arise. And I, I suppose I've just always been interested in them because my you know experiences with science fiction. You know, you know partially it's Maybe you see too many engineers read a science fiction book and they think, oh, that'd be cool to make. And then you think back and you're like, but wasn't the point of the book that ruined society or all of humanity or something like that? Maybe the point of the book wasn't to try to make that cool thing. Uh, I've always been interested in these kinds of bigger questions. So it seems like there's a pattern throughout history where there's almost emergent phenomena from the things that we create that have unanticipated consequences. And I think you alluded to a few of them with social media and Facebook. Can you talk about a few that are of particular relevance to today's time period or that may have affected you? The interesting thing about technology is we don't always reason about what kinds of technologies we actually interact with. So if I remember getting on Facebook 
in high school because it was cool. There was no kind of ethical reflection about it. It was just there were only certain people on Facebook. And, you know, I guess kind of like Gmail, you had to get kind of invited. There's a little bit of an exclusivity to it. And so it was a way to kind of know you were in socially. And actually, I remember getting on Facebook for the first time because I was at the University of Michigan at a debate camp. And I remember being in the library next to the guy who was inviting me onto Facebook. And it was just this kind of a social win of like, yes, like I'm I'm connected to these other people. And social media today is one of those things where it's kind of hard to opt out of it, especially for me now. I'm in Boston. Most of my family is on the other side of the country in California. And how am I supposed to interact with them if I'm not on social media? I can talk to them, and I do. You know, I have regular calls with my family. But still, one of the main ways that they see what's going on with me is just, what's what am I doing on Facebook? That, that, that actually really matters to them in a way that it doesn't matter to me necessarily, but it's still an important way in which we connect. And there's all other sorts of things that go into that, like, well, who controls that data? Because I might have a purpose for it, but it's also kind of goes beyond me in a lot of ways. And I think with what you were saying about unanticipated consequences, well, we actually really don't understand what's going on now, at least not in a very scientific way. We can, it's just a really big experiment. I, I think especially during COVID, we're not really sure what these kinds of social interactions are going to do for us in the long term. In some ways, they've been a safety net for us in helping us connect with others. And as you said, it's almost essential nowadays to be on social media, whether that's LinkedIn for your career or on Instagram so that you can keep in touch with friends and family or Facebook. It's kind of curious how we're we're going into these new frontiers blind without an idea of how they're going to affect us. Like, I don't think many people would have predicted that social media would have taken over the planet in the way that it did. So what are some of your predictions for social media in general, but also how that might evolve further? It's hard to make predictions exactly because I do feel like the next big technology is going to be something we don't yet anticipate. And also there are aspects of technology that haven't quite made their way to everyone. I think a, a good example of this is something like a Fitbit. So a Fitbit is something that's attached to a person's body and helps them to say, you know, get, get a number of steps in, regulate their heart rate and whatnot. And I'm not convinced that it really measures your heart rate that well. But there's this idea that I, I should be measuring these things on an ongoing basis. And there's actually a movement called the quantitative self movement, which is all about how can I micromanage the body in more and more minute and intense ways. So this can come down to the kinds of calories that you're intaking, to the amount of time you spend on something. And the things that I'm actually interested in isn't particular technologies per se, but these kinds of larger patterns which dictated a kind of interest that wasn't there before. And I think that the, the quantifying of the self is one of those things. So if it comes to mind that maybe I would really benefit from counting my steps each day, well, then what other things might I benefit from quantifying? Could I quantify from, say, you know, micromeasuring every you know, piece of broccoli that I eat or every piece of chicken? Should I be analyzing those calories down to the detail? Should I be using tools to help me sleep? And we kind of see the, the, or these new kinds of this new interest in technologies to help manage with those things. For instance, you know, I bought a new iPhone a couple of weeks ago and one of the things that was really interested in is like oh what's your sleep schedule like you know how do you 
how, how can I help you to wake up in the morning is kind of what the technology is offering to do. And I think the increasing level of personalization is going to be whatever the next thing is. I think it's almost, I don't want to say an inevitable product of big data, but maybe it is, of you have so much information and you've accumulated to such a degree and you have kind of automatic machine processes that can work person by person that you can act on those that really high level macro data like to honing in on a particular person's situation. That, that's kind of the dream. And so I think we're going to head in that direction for a little bit longer because it hasn't quite been exhausted yet. How do you think that translates to the way that we want to portray ourselves through technology, but also how we want to immortalize ourselves with technology and perpetuate ideas of ourselves that may not be true to who we are, whatever that means? The first thing that makes me think of, and I think this is actually a credit to you know, background in literature and of kind of understanding semantics. The way that we think of ourselves now is very different than the way that people would have thought about themselves, say, before the Industrial Revolution. In fact, if we think about things before the computer became prevalent, people also thought of themselves very differently. Especially during COVID, when most of our interactions are digital, there's a way in which we can get trapped into thinking that the digital is the real, in a sense, that the management of my digital persona is perhaps more important than the management of my real self. And if I'm going to was kind of try and bring together, say, our conversation on social media with some of the stuff we talked about with the quanti quantified self, there are people who instead pursue the management of that digital self for the, you know, the best possible gain. So those would be the people who are, are in search of that one perfect photo or that one perfect tweet in order to kind of maximize attention, not on themselves directly, but on their avatar and by proxy onto themselves. That's the way that I would think about it. And because of that, I do think that some people may prioritize the completely digital and try to imagine what a completely digital existence would be like. I don't know how much of this is popular now, but it, in the 1980s, there's a book called Neuromancer by William Gibson. And the main character in that book was, was called Case, right? And he's called Case because the, the case is the meat, right? And he's trying to get out of his body. He wants to inhabit in the cyberspace completely, kind of without his body. And what's interesting about, again, about, say, the quantified self-movement is it is still very physical, right? You're managing your stuff, you know, you're managing every part of who you are. But some people would idealize kind of going beyond that. And I think this is where transhumanist arguments start to come into start to come into the picture. And what those would basically say is, well, why is it that I have to be restricted to the way that my body is? The true me is actually this kind of mental thing. And perhaps there's no reason intrinsically that that can't be made into a digital form and that that digital form would have all kinds of advantages, which I'm happy to talk about if you want to go there. But that, that, that idealization that if I'm really software running on a hardware body, why can't I move that software onto something better? And again, to make reference to the case of Neuromancer, he kind of dreams of, of flying around in this sort of digital space in which he has complete freedom. And if we think about the, the kind of argument against, say, I don't know, scientific triumphalism of... You, know, you can use technology to kind of rule the environment and make it in any way in which you wish. Well, the digital environment is kind of the, the best 
possible target for that because you can remake it any way that you want. Whenever you're out in the real world, you'll always be encountering resistance. But in the digital world, you can finally make that thing that you really wanted. Think about something like Minecraft, in which you're able to make these huge kind of monumental projects. And of course, there's still resistance because it's a game of some kind, right? But that digital world is infinitely more malleable than our physical world is out here, or at least the amount of resources you would need in the real world to get that a similar result is, is just completely a different magnitude. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's talk about transhumanism and some of these concepts that people are putting forward, maybe stepping through it from first making us more like cyborgs, more integrated with technology, and then concepts that you and I have talked about around uploading consciousness to the cloud, for example. What do you think of that, of that entire field and where is it headed? Transhumanism itself is actually very diverse. There's three different foci for transhumanism. First, what I would say is there's a focus on the uh, biological body. So Aubrey de Grey, actually someone who's appeared on this program, is one of the main people who, who is a proponent of this. So he's a gerontologist and he talks about, well, how is it that we can take the kinds of biological mechanisms in place, the, the ones that result in basically healthy cells not being able to reproduce, but un unhealthy cells you know, reproducing themselves. You know, think of something like cancer, for instance. Uh, because the evolutionary trade-offs were not strong enough to get rid of that, is there a way we can kind of fix the mechanisms of the body to you know, re remove most of the effects of aging or to dramatically stop them. That, that's one pursuit. Then also what you alluded to is something like cyborgization. So that would be the actual integration of mechanical parts onto your body. And, and we actually have cyborgs already, people who have like really sophisticated arms, maybe they have legs. And I think that these things are actually really amazing. To, to have the function of your arm back in some sense is, is really miraculous. But I, I will say where the more transhumanist end of that comes in is not strictly therapeutic, but why is it that I only have to have one arm, right? Well, why couldn't I make something else? Or why couldn't I have a beam cannon like Samus Aran in Metroid or something like that? So the, the transhumanists would constantly be asking those sorts of questions of, well, well, why is it that the mechanical part has to resemble that of a human? Why can't we expand what those things mean? And I think the, the part where you get cyborgs is when you start to see that. Even things like neural links, for instance, are also part of what cyborgization would look like. Could you use that in order to increase processing speed in your brain to, you know, maybe a kind of external storage for, for, for memory that you don't need at the moment? There's all, all those sorts of questions are, are really interesting in themselves. But then finally, there's what we call, you know, the strictly digital version of this. And this is most closely associated with Ray Kurzweil. And Ray Kurzweil is very, very interested in what we call mind uploading. So taking a, a picture of the brain, you know, mirroring, mapping the kinds of neural connections that it has, and then reproducing a personality to, to live on that. But what's interesting about, say, Kurzweil and other proponents of this, so Nick Bostrom's a philosopher at Oxford, and in his paper on emulation, there's kind of a couple throwaway sentences, which uh, if, if Dr. Bostrom is listening to this, I hope he, does, I hope he forgives me for reading into them, but... He, he does talk about, you know, like in making the digital person, the first step might be kind of mirroring biological processes, but perhaps there's a deeper, more abstract way to understand the person that doesn't rely on those things. 
And I think that that's really interesting, right? Because it, it goes back to this idea of if you have a kind of transhumanist who's really interested in being free of the body, then you would also want to be free of a kind of digital surrogate body as well. You wouldn't want to be confined by that because the whole point of becoming digital is to not have to be like this anymore. It's to kind of be like, like strictly like an avatar that you can inhabit, that you can remake in any ways that you wish. And this is where kind of the trans part of transhumanism really comes in, that the malleability of your yourself and your body and your form in a truly malleable environment that you can remake however you wish, that, that sort of freedom that's supposed to come from that. And again, if you view your mind as your real self, then that, that becomes a really appealing way to think. It almost sounds like what people really want are two things. One is permanence. They want to persist. And then also freedom, freedom in how you define yourself and what environment you're in. So taking that a step further, are there other ways that this could be achieved? I've always thought to myself, you know, what if we lived in a world where we figure out a certain type of neurochemistry that via meditative states, for example, that creates such a sense of bliss that suddenly a lot of our motivation to pursue these technologies is no longer there. We're going to, the question you just asked is far bigger than I think you may realize. And so, so to respond to the, the first part of it in terms of Per, you know, this search for per permanence and for freedom, the, there's a couple of things that are important in transhumanist philosophy. First, we have to remember that while it's not exclusively kind of an atheist agnostic movement, and I think it's important that it's not exclusive, transhumanism is very diverse, but because it's largely secular, if we're thinking about like, well, what other ways of immortality could you pursue? Some of those ways are actually off the table. So for instance, if you're a Christian who believes that after you die, if you lived a moral life, Right? If you accepted Christ, then you'll go to heaven. Then that's one way of achieving it. That's one view of that. You know, and there are going to be different views of that among different religions. But what's interesting about transhumanism is it's actually in their denial of those things that they go looking for a different way of pursuing that. And again, we, we might ask questions about this, especially because if you study prior secular movements, say the new atheists that came before them or you know, the atheist movements that came before them, there was always kind of this proud acceptance of death and kind of the cycles of death. And we should just accept it. Like we should be the ones to accept the harsh reality. But we don't see transhumanists doing that. In fact, what they're doing is, they're, is they say, well, because there's nothing else after this, the only thing that I can pursue is, is experience in the real world as I understand it. And so how can I extend that experience as far as humanly possible? Right. Or if you take it out far enough, you know, as far as scientifically possible, maybe to the end of the physical universe itself. And that's actually really wild to think about. But again, if you accept that when I die, I really die. There's nothing after that. They would say, well, what value can be derived from me not coming with to those experiences? And so I, I think that that's one of the ways in which you arrive at this desire for immortality. And What's really interesting, too, is how they kind of access that is in part because they, they're relying on technologies that don't exist yet. And the hope is that you'll live long enough to get to the to next breakthrough in life extension. And then that life extension breakthrough will lead into another breakthrough in life extension. 
And basically, you'll just ride those life extension breakthroughs all the way through to the end. That's kind of the hope. And so just because we don't know now how it is that you might be able to become a digital form of yourself, that doesn't mean we won't figure it out at some point. Wrapping up, are there any particular companies or technologies you're interested in working with? And where can people find you? Right now, I'm going to be working on a digital ethics podcast called DigEthics, and you can find that at digethics.org, so D-I-G-E-T-H-I-X.org. And I'm also at sethviegas.com if you want to find my personal information, including I have a whole list of, of all the books that I've kind of read for my exams and everything, so if people want to kind of follow up, like, how did I get here? That's one of the ways you can kind of track that. In terms of companies, the one that immediately comes to mind is something like Neuralink, Actually, uh, the philosopher Slavoj Žižek wrote, wrote this whole book on neural links and what does it mean to have kind of a machine attached to your brain. And he made this really interesting argument, uh, spoilers for people who don't want the, the, the book to be spoiled, but he talks about the ability to kind of give direct sensory experiences in your brain actually ruins some of the pleasure of those experiences. And... He gives this example of fantasy, right? Of when we fantasize about something like, I don't know, like a kiss or something like that. We don't fantasize about the best kiss we ever had, but about the best kiss we never had. It's something that kind of goes beyond the censorious experience that's happened to us in reality. And so that in itself goes back to something you mentioned earlier, Morgan, about just kind of injecting things into our brain about is there actually a difference in that? And I'm really kind of fascinated in the philosophy of that, first of all, in part because of Zizek's work of is something actually lost by just kind of giving yourselves that experience? Is there some aspect of reality that ruins the fantasy? Those are all really interesting things. In terms of something that's a little less out there, maybe a little less transhumanist, something like self-driving cars is also something I've done a lot of research on. When I was doing coursework here, I was really interested in those questions, looked a lot into the work of people like Patrick Lynn, uh, you know, companies like Uber are really interested in those things. There's lots of societal consequences. But also if you have a system that's supposed to kind of effectively choose between people in a, in a given situation, uh, actually one of the most interesting ethical quandaries that I've come up with for this is if it's possible to know everyone in a given situation, are you right to know? So if we have, say, there's three different people walking and you, know, you can either you know, hit two or hit one or something like that. If you could know everyone in that situation, should you know that? What if the one person was the governor or something like that or someone who's considered really important? And because of all the information we have, I think that that's actually possible. And it raises this, it kind of heightens those questions to an extra degree of, is there a way in which extra information actually makes a given situation less ethical to deal with, right? Where it's actually the, the ignorance is kind of protecting you from making the wrong decision in that situation because it kind of ruins the moral calculus in the same way that I wouldn't want my friend to get hit by a car, even if it was the kind of utilitarian outcome, like one that led to the least amount of life lost. All those sorts of things are really interesting to me. And I think that they demand further exploration. And uh, it, it's just a, a whole new frontier. So that'd definitely be the second path for me is, is, you know, going to one of those tech companies and really thinking about those things 
And, you know, I mean, unfortunately, we're probably going to make a lot of mistakes in these areas before we come to a broader consensus about how to deal with them. Well, thank you very much. I'll leave it on that fascinating note. I really enjoyed our discussion um, and look forward to talking with you again on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Morgan. So now that we've learned about the present and future of transhumanism, our question for our listeners is, what does your use of technology say about you? Do your digital selves reflect who you are? As always, thank you for listening to this episode of Imagine Human. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share with your friends. Visit imaginehuman.com to learn more about this show and view various show notes, including links to Seth's work and sources that he referenced.